0: Welcome back to the Peace Building Podcast. It's really a pleasure to have you all here. Uh, I have a really surprise and interesting co-host with me today uh, named Stephen Gray. Somebody who, what's been interesting about this podcast is how people have just appeared. Uh, Really wonderful people. Uh, First, uh, Scott Nicholas, uh, Scott Brunberg, actually because my both names who helps with the sound, uh, then Mary Grace, who does the show gro- uh, show notes and is always traveling in some part of the world. I never can find her, but she does a brilliant job. And then Steve showed up a couple, uh, maybe six weeks ago or something, and has a really um, some deep experience in international peace building, and is just a delightful person. And so it's been really a pleasure to me to think about this with him, collaborate with him. And Steve, hello. So uh, welcome to the welcome to joining me.
1: Hello, Susan, and hello, listeners. Uh, it's very exciting to have my first foray into live recording with you, uh, and I'm really excited about the opportunity to hear the fantastic interviewees that you're talking to engage with you, Susan, and engage with your audience. So thanks for having me. Oh,
0: it's really a pleasure. Uh, will you say just a, a brief a bit about you and your background in, in the peace building world?
1: Absolutely. So I'm coming up to about a decade now and I'd say international peace building because most of that has not been in my country of origin, New Zealand, and it has not been in the United States where I've spent some of my adult time Uh, So, I've been working as a peace builder in Myanmar for more than five years. Uh, Cambodia, South Sudan as well, a little bit of a hurry into Colombia and a pretty diverse smattering of roles. It began with a lot of UN departments and agencies, then moved into NGOs, consulting, some academic work. So, I've kind of spread myself around a little bit professionally and i'm excited at this point in time to kind of stay take a step back and think about this practice of peace building that we do why we do it how we can do it better and that's you know a key reason that i wanted to engage in the great work that you're doing with the podcast susan
0: yeah so i think that's part of what attracted me to you uh, joining me on this is that you we have some complementary skill sets some different and complementary skill sets and and areas of focus so yeah, I think, um, well, yeah, I think Steve will bring a lot to this conversation. So, but we are both here to uh, introduce Joe Washington, uh, which is the current interview today. And Joe is somebody that I have known uh, probably, I don't know, maybe five years now. I met him in Juba in uh, at the um, United Nations Peacekeeping Mission in South Sudan. And um, so, He spent a long time there. He has really been on the ground in a peacekeeping mission, doing a lot of the hard work. And uh, um, I think what I wanted, you know, it's actually 10 10 years he was in South Sudan and now very recently has retired from UNMIS and um, is working in Italy and um, is part of something called the Global Vision Institute, which is a network, catalyst, and think tank for creating... A universal values-driven international system, um, but I think the thing that I just want the, want you all to know about Joe is is when you are act- when I was actually the times that I was there at UNMISS, Joe is like the kind of person who's like the glue, or was the kind of glue for the entire peacekeeping mission. Everybody knew him, and he has this incredibly warm, intelligent demeanor and uh, a ton of integrity. Um, Yeah, so he just was like some sort of like the spirit of the place. And it's not always an easy place. And he brought uh, a lot of spirit um, to what he was doing. So it's really a pleasure to have him here. So what Steve and I thought we would do is, uh, as I've been doing, is talk a little bit about some of the parts of the interview that we think are interesting and then get right to it. So you can hear Joe himself. So I don't know, Steve, I don't know if you want to start with um, anything about the interview that stood out to you.
1: Absolutely, I've I've got a couple of things. You know, it's not so long ago that I can remember how I got started in peace building and all the uncertainty and questions I had about how to forge an international career. And close to the start of the podcast, he talks about what drew him into peace building. He gives a great anecdote about seeing news about an middle eastern conflict being described as a holy war how that was a contradiction in terms for him because he had a a background of, of faith and he felt that he could do something about it and he talks about the training that he went through the education and the experiences that led him into getting into the united nations in sudan and then south sudan so i thought that was an interesting signpost for people thinking about their own career and how to develop it. And then the next point that he kind of comes back to a couple of times, I don't know, maybe 30 or 35 minutes in, he's talking about the separation between the international peace building community or the United Nations and the local population. And he describes that in a couple of different ways. He describes it in kind of lost in translation, you know, when your local counterpart doesn't turn up for a meeting and your colleagues, international colleagues think that they don't care or they're not interested or lazy or whatever, But they have different priorities and needs. They might be taking care of a large extended family. They might have basic livelihood needs that need to be met. And he kind of points to this different worldviews that we come from and how being an effective peace builder is part of that is cross-cultural understanding. I think that comes out because of depth of experience in that country and then you know the final point that I'd make which he circles back around to is in thinking about what sometimes uh, a criticism of the UN is that they're kind of isolated from the population and Juba you'll remember this you know there's a big unmiss compound which is physically but also in terms of access to resources and culture, very separated from the local population. And he talks about the perceptions of locals and how they see UN folks driving around in these big SUVs with a lot more money and resources that local people don't have, and how that works against the interests of trying to work effectively in terms of local ownership and really good engagement with, with the host population. And that resonated with me because I think it's true and he's reflecting upon a theme of this podcast which is how do you bridge those divides, how can the UN be better at using local resources, engaging with local people so they understand the mission, so those points I think are pretty interesting for people that understand the UN and some of its strengths and weaknesses or want to understand how effective is the UN in those kind of contexts?
0: Yeah, and then it's so understandable as well. I'm thinking of myself in Juba. I was there right before um, the, the, the 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 everything went really downhill, and people came into the mission. You know, sort of got there's there's all the um, internally displaced people camps surrounding Juba. I mean, surrounding UNMIS and. It's um, So I just feel that tension in myself of the fact that I got out of there right before the whole thing really um, became very, very unstable. So I understand the tension um, for people who are working there, wanting to keep themselves safe and also wanting to do good work. Um,
1: Absolutely. And he does make a really good point because you ask a great question, which is, you know, what is the opportunity cost of unness of the UN's mission, peacekeeping mission in South Sudan. What about other actors and could they do a better job? And that's a question that's often asked about the, the relevance of the United Nations. And his response around the crisis in 2013 or 2014 that you're referring to is that there's good reason to believe that the United Nations prevented a genocide in that context. And we'll never know for sure because we can't, we can't measure a counterfactual, but who else would have done that job? the business community can't do that. Foreign governments can't do that by themselves. So I think it really spoke to a continued need for the UN.
0: So, and of course, uh, Scylla Elworthy is gonna be coming on next time and really talking about uh, some of the opportunity cost issues and uh, a business plan for peace, which I'm really looking forward to, to think about. You know, what can you do with the money that we have on the planet to make the the biggest possible impact? Yeah. So, just in terms of my some of my favorite moments, I, I actually thought oh, what, this is a this is a little bit of a weird interview in that. Uh, Joe and I—I I, was me interviewing him. Steve wasn't around then, and I—we uh, ended the interview, and then we kept talking. And a lot of the best—I thought a lot of the best parts of the interview came out at that point. And so I said to Joe, "Listen, I—I I think I want to—I want to broadcast that as well. Is that okay?" And he said, "Fine." So that's what we're going to do. So um, you know, working backwards, I think he talks a lot about the realities of life in the life in the camp, in the camps. Um, uh, there's different camps throughout South Sudan. There's um, Torit, there's WoW. and um, so he, he talks about sort of the the kinds of people that uh, you know like can deal with being living in containers because of course Juba is a little bit more comfortable, I guess, than some of the more distant camps. And um, people, li- well, people live in containers in all places, and some people like literally sleep in their clothes so that they're ready to get Up at any moment in case there's an invasion, and this other woman I, you know, I was remembering basically, um, I think thrived in living in that kind of a condition where bullets were flying by. <laughs> I mean, it takes a certain kind of personality to do that to, to be in that kind of environment. So, that was one we get into talking about that, and then, uh, and then I think a, a final thing I just want to comment on is, you know, the. The issue of how important management, good management, is, and how I know the UN really strives for this, and it's a it's a it's a tall bar to reach, because so often in these kinds of like uh, something like UNMISS really needs to be the more it can bring a presence that is then needed in the outside environment, the more effective it's going to be. Uh, but that's a that's a tall bar, and and being a I, I like to use the analogy of. Uh, Conducting the orchestra uh, in a way that makes sense, and Joe's talking about how lots of times there's—it's hard for the system to operate as one, which is something it really wants to do, and also to get away from the tendency to be looking for senior management to be looking outward rather than really paying attention to manage to conducting the internal orchestra so it—it it does its its job to its best. Investability. So anyway, on that note, maybe that's enough said. Um, I think uh, if you're interested in working in a peacekeeping mission, interested in knowing more about what that's like, I think you'll find this interview super interesting. So, um, yeah. So let's go for it. So, Joe, thank you. Thank you for joining us on the Peace Building Podcast. It's uh, really a pleasure to have you here, and um, uh, let's just dive in. Uh, I I think um, your story will be super interesting to listeners, and um, I uh, wanted to start with with just um, hearing how you came to be in South Sudan. How did that all come come to happen?
2: Um that's a very long story. Started growing up on the south side of Chicago and feeling an impulse to want to do something internationally to try to make the world a better place. And that led me to pursue an academic.
0: How did that even come into your consciousness, the world? The- Beyond Chicago. The
2: moment was watching the 6 p.m. evening news with my parents as a young child and hearing stories about a conflict in the Middle East, clearly the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, and hearing it described as a holy war and as a child wondering how can you have a holy war. It just seemed like a contradiction in terms. And I felt an impulse in the sense that I could just sit down with them, maybe I get them to stop fighting and
0: what do you it's interesting that you how old were you when you were uh,
2: ten twelve
0: and and how did you have the discernment to think that holy war seemed
2: to be a contradiction into I guess it was you know the religious upbringing and going to church and hearing about God and Jesus and peace and love and so. For people to be killing one another in the name of various gods just seemed like it's not what I was being taught in church at the time.
0: Yeah. So holy and war was not, not two words that existed <laughs> exist in the same phrase. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So, okay. So then, you know, give us the highlights. How did yeah. how then, you know, keep right. going through the journey? So that led me. I mean, because you and I, We, I think we first met each other in, I think, 2013, oh, right. sitting in that, uh, hotel, that yeah. uh, hotel run by, uh, I know they oh. were, I can't remember where they were from, Tunisia or something. They had created this hotel right. in, in Juba. And we were, uh, yeah, you came over and we started talking and that was the first time I yeah. got to know you. Right, right. Yeah. So anyway, so like, yeah, some of the highlights of um, yeah, how you came to be. So that uh, in South Sudan, <laughs> not how you came to
2: be, but <laughs> well, my mother and father met.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah.
2: <laughs> so anyway, that led me on a, um, a crusade, if you will, to find out how does one get into a position to help parties in conflict. And similar to that, what are the skills required? Uh, so in terms of how does one get into position, the first thought was, oh, one would have to be in a position such as U.S. Secretary of State, but an African-American can never be U.S. Secretary of State. So then growing up some more, and Jesse Jackson ran for president and thinking, ah, huh, maybe an African-American can be Secretary of State, but I would not necessarily want to be bound by U.S. foreign policy. Uh, so that I had the same problem. I wanted to work
0: with the CIA, but I really <laughs> didn't like what they were doing. <laughs> anyway, it wasn't exactly the same problem. I was white. You know, that's a different kind of thing. But I And I was, uh, you know, a woman, whatever. We know these things. But anyway, so continue. Yeah.
2: Uh, so that then led me to uh, figure out how does one become an independent diplomat? So that led me to uh, enrolling in uh, conflict resolution, negotiation, mediation training, wherever I could find it, and simultaneously trainings in human rights, uh, because I felt that the two um, would very usefully and importantly come together. Mm-hmm. So from there, I embarked on a career in public service, working for the mayor's office in Chicago. Then pursuing an um, academic career, which culminated in a master's degree at George Mason University in Virginia. And then saying, now, how do I do a PhD combining human rights and conflict resolution? Ultimately, that led me to the Netherlands and Italy uh, to continue my studies. And in Italy, meeting individuals from the UN, Department of Peacekeeping and Operation, as I was organizing a training course there.
0: Is that also where you met your wife?
2: Um, differently, different time. Okay. okay. And um, the people I met said, uh, we really like the way you've organized this course. You should think about a career with the UN. Okay, why not? So um, that led me to ultimately applying for different missions, and I was accepted to work in the training unit with the peacekeeping mission and uh, then Sudan and ultimately South Sudan.
0: And that was what two thousand six. So two thousand six. So you, the total amount of time you have spent in uh, South Sudan, in Sudan or South Sudan, what is how yeah. many years? Ten years. Okay. Yeah. So, could you could you paint yeah. the story? I think just just the reality of what it was like to be there, what it was, I, and obviously not blow by blow, but uh, just give the listeners a sense of the reality of, um, what life, well, I just want to say also, you know, my awareness of you, I've, as you know, I've been in, uh, at UNMIS, which is the uh, UN peacekeeping mission in South Sudan. I've been there three times, I think. And, and the, um, the last time is the one that stands out with you. I mean, I think I've seen you a number of times, but the last time with you, I just remember your presence, um, on, um, in the, in the mission. Uh, and you may not see it this way, but what I could see as an outside, uh, as an outside consultant is Joe is sort of the connector. <laughs> everybody knows him. He's like walking around. He's like, he just knows everybody and where all the bodies are buried. And, you know, from the top of the mission to the bottom of the mission, it just seemed like you were like kind of the glue in a lot of ways to a lot of things and a lot of moving parts. Um, does it, feel like that? Yeah. Does it feel like that? Yeah, and I, I always yeah. felt
2: very fortunate um, because serving in the training unit often brings you in contact with people from all over the mission. So right. in terms of induction, uh, we generally see new staff first because, in theory, everyone should come through induction. And, yeah, you have a different relationship And the notion of you never get a second chance to make a first impression. I always took very serious and how I conducted induction. And it was very important to give staff the reality of mission life, uh, but then to also remind them, if it were easy, we would not be here. And that you're not alone, and there's lots of colleagues who are also committed and dedicated and want to make a difference, because the people of South Sudan expect nothing less from us. So that was always my mantra uh, to the people I came across, and people were there for the most part because they wanted to make a difference. And so it was humbling to to have the contacts and connections throughout those ten years.
0: And who was there? And how you
2: know who who yeah who was there? Say more. We say who was there.
0: Well, who was there? Who was there with you? Who, was, who, who were UN staff
2: uh, in the mission? Where were they coming from? Um, the UN um, is truly a melting pot. It uh, could be a salad um, or it could be a melting pot where all the ingredients don't actually melt. They just remain lumps. Uh, <laughs> but it was a fantastic experience. So it was people basically from all over the world. Um, in terms of the civilian staff, uh, military staff, and police staff as well. So people from different cultures, religions, backgrounds, ethnicities, uh, all trying to figure out how to get to know one another and and work together. One very interesting story to highlight this for me was – During one of the inductions from the old mission to the new mission, we were having a group discussion and one of the uh, police trainers, police advisors, I should say, uh, was sharing his frustration that they went to train the local police in South Sudan and that he would go to the tree because... Then there were not many police stations, so they would agree to meet under a tree um, at 8 o'clock in the morning. And often this person wouldn't show up. And he expresses frustration that he came all the way from his comfortable country to be here to help to South Sudanese. And they were not showing up and how yeah, it was just frustrating for him. So I was able to share, you know, to validate his frustration that, yes, I'm sure it's very frustrating. um, But let's look at it from the other point of view. So what are you providing to your South Sudanese colleague? Knowledge, your experience, which is very important. Maybe his priority is he has a wife and six kids he has to feed. He's not being paid Uh, from the government. So his priority at that particular moment may be the survival of his family. And that doesn't negate your importance in terms of the knowledge, but it may not be his priority at any particular time. And I think that was a recurring thing for many of our colleagues, trying to understand and relate to what we perceived as the priority versus what the host nation and the host nation personnel saw as their priority very clear with some of the agencies and funds and programs. They're providing food, they're providing shelter, they're providing education, where we as peacekeeping mission, we often provide a process. We provide dialogue. Um, To the best extent, uh, we provide security and protection. But again, Many do not see that as tangible as those other basic human needs that they need to address, so that's one of the many layers of communication and miscommunication and cross cultural misunderstanding that exists
0: yeah it seems like a, a, a great anecdote to capture a lot um, could you back up yeah. for a second and just make sure the listeners understand what you mean by the former mission and then the South
2: Sudanese mission, just, just yeah. Uh, yeah, provide a little context about right. that. So um, the United Nations mission in Sudan was formed in 2005. And this mandate was to support the peace agreement between the north and south of Sudan. And we had offices in the north and we had offices in the south. I-
0: so you had offices in Juba and in... Cartoon. Um,
2: in And Khartoum okay. was part of the mission at that point later it broke off. Mm. So our job was to help the parties in the North and South fulfill their um, commitment, because the commitment was to make unity attractive for both parties, uh, after which point the South would have a referendum to decide if they wanted to remain part of a unified Sudan or form their own country. And ultimately, they decided they wanted to form their own country, which took place in 2011. So then the new mission was formed, um, unmissed. So they added S. So instead of United Nations Missions in Sudan, it became United Nations Mission in South Sudan.
0: So the UN. I mean, I always heard it's like the UN got kicked out of Khartoum. Is that does that did it feel like
2: that or not? Um, most people would agree that's what happened. Yes. hmm
0: hmm and, and why was that? Why did
2: the UN? Um, because out? Um, the Khartoum government felt the mission was not neutral and helped promote the southerners' um, quest for independence. So mm-hmm. they needed to blame someone, so they blamed the mission for the South deciding to separate.
0: So, um, yeah, that, that problem of being a mediator, which the UN essentially was, but, it, uh, you know, basically being perceived as actually really more um, one-sided, yeah. and uh, that's always such a dilemma. So I want to hear, uh, you know, it, just for you, so, what were what did you – what did you love about working there? And what do you think, if you could generalize about staff in general, what did people love about working there? That might be the same or that might be different, but what did, what did you love about working there? Let's
2: start with that. I love, so as a trainer, I loved either an induction or organizing a training course when you're sharing information or watching the participants engage with one another and the magical, you know, light goes on where you see they got it, they understand. I love seeing the enthusiasm and commitment of people determined to make a difference, whatever it takes, in terms of the hours or the effort. Um, I love the interaction with people from different parts of the world who most of us probably would never have gotten together for whatever reason um, because of geographic distance or because of geopolitics in terms of, oh, you're from that country and we hate everybody from your country, but now that I get a chance to meet you, you know, you're okay. So breaking down those barriers. Yeah. Yeah. Those were like the main things that really stick out.
0: And okay. And then, um, and then what were, I mean, what were the, what did you not love? And um, yeah. I somewhere in there want you to also describe, if you could kind of give a picture of what it was like there. But yeah. I, those may be separate okay. questions.
2: Um, so for me, it was important to understand that. The peacekeeping mission in is was a bureaucracy. So just like city, state, international bureaucracy is still a bureaucracy. And that was one of the first things I realized, similarities from my experience working in city government in Chicago, It's like, oh, my God, (laughs) it's the same thing. (laughs) Yes. Uh And so just like in any bureaucracy, you have a variety of individuals. So you have the individuals who are very committed, hardworking, passionate about their job. You have those who are frustrated and disenchanted, uh, maybe burnt out. And then you have those who are just there for the paycheck. So my challenge then became, how do we find one another? Those who are still energized and those who still want to make a difference but are tired or trying. That I always felt that group wanted a reason to believe again. They wanted a reason to try again. But for them, it was intelligent to stop hitting their head against that mystical brick wall because, yeah, it, at some point, it's not intelligent to keep doing that. So, to find-
0: Because of the ways that bureaucracy would foil their right.
2: efforts. Right. A- was it the bureaucracy or politics or both? Yeah. Both at different times, one or the other, and yeah. sometimes both, um, yeah. which gets into, um, we can talk about now or later, the whole issue of support. And again, that was one of the big frustrations. So support and lack thereof. So who do you blame? So, you know, some would say, oh, it's New York. It's always New York was always the easiest one to blame for the lack of support.
0: I think New York basically gets the blame throughout the U.S. If something doesn't go goes wrong in the UN system, you know, it's it's New York, and sometimes Geneva, but mo- mostly it's those people in New York.
2: <laughs> um, sometimes, if you're at the headquarters level in 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 the mission, then people in the fields think you're the problem. Um, there's just too much finger pointing in terms of why things aren't working, instead of more time reflecting on the whole notion of um, you know, circle of concern versus circle of influence and focusing on what is it I can do within my mm-hmm. own little circle instead of spending my time and energy worrying about what I can't control. And often that's a lot larger area than we think. And so, again, part of my effort, as you s- said earlier about going around, was finding like-minded people because together we could enlarge our circle. Mm -hmm. And I think more colleagues um, should engage in those kind of efforts because I think that's where the bottom-up reform can really happen.
0: So Joe, can you describe uh, the physical realities of living there?
2: Things change. Tremendously from 2006 when I arrived to uh, basically February of 2017 when I left. So, um, when I arrived in Khartoum in 2006, I had a very comfortable apartment with all the amenities.
0: On, on the,
2: in the mission. Yeah, yeah. So in Khartoum, yeah. you lived on the local economy yeah, because okay. there were apartments and. Yeah, okay. and at, so you actually
0: lived in Khartoum yeah, yeah, itself. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: And as in um, many environments where the UN is based, the UN moves in with large personnel and suddenly the prices skyrocket. Mm-hmm. The whole supply and demand. As uh,
0: this friend called it the other day, the, the peace building industrial complex. <laughs> yes,
2: well, but I had a very nice apartment in Cartoon, and then um, uh, the following year I was transferred to Juba, in,
0: which is in South, in Sudan. South
2: Sudan. In South Sudan, and two thousand and seven, I was first of all I was told I was lucky when I moved there because they had recently moved out of living in tents. So when I got there we all had containers similar to like small shipping containers and the containers had one single bed, a table, a chair, a wardrobe, and a mini refrigerator. We
0: And plenty of and plenty of mosquito netting pl- over your bed.
2: And brought you brought <laughs> your own, yes. Uh, oh you brought your own? Yes. Oh, okay. uh, we had shared evolutions uh, for men and women. So I vividly... You mean, you mean
0: toilets? Is that what you mean by evolution? Yes. Okay. Sorry for being so <laughs> indelicate. Yes, yeah. yes. Okay. Yes. So mm-hmm. I
2: vividly remember um, standing in line at 6.30 in the morning um, in my room with, you know, male, female colleagues all in line in front of you. Uh, all waiting to get to the shower and that hour in the morning um, over the years things gradually 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 improved uh, the question at that point was again why did it take so long whose fault was it because we wanted to blame someone you know was it
0: so the, it was definitely affecting morale yep the the, yep. the, the, uh, the tents and then the containers. Right. One of the things I remember about the containers is uh, uh, some some military personnel being young military personnel being in containers in a container without any air conditioning working. And, you know, it's just like,
2: oh, my God,
0: you know, that's basically living in a box without any air conditioning.
2: But then again, that goes back to if it were easy, we would not be here. So, mm-hmm. peacekeeping missions aren't club med. They don't go in areas mm-hmm. where everything is wonderful and developed. Uh, when that happens, that's like, oh, wow, what a treat, but that's not the norm. So, there's mm-hmm. always this challenge to balance minimum comfort with being in the field. Again, because that's mm-hmm. the point of peacekeeping missions.
0: And and Joe what about your personal can you say a little bit about the the actual security situation because obviously I know the last time I was there I know I left and then right after that the mission got invaded I believe right it was and you were there so I don't know say a little just say a little bit about that reality uh, you're laughing yeah. it's just like as if
2: it's a, uh, a good friend of mine once said Uh, because he was living outside the mission basically for the entire time. And his philosophy was the best security is the local community. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that um, it's, I think it's part of a worldwide trend uh, of the United Nations, where we're isolating ourselves more and more from the host nation population that we're supposed to be there to serve. Now, there are clear security reasons for why this happened and when this trend happened, um, but it has consequences in terms of the outreach, uh, because I think that's a key factor in the community wondering why are these UN people here? They live in their compounds. They have their own water. They have their own food. They have their own electricity. They have all of these things we do not have. But they say they're here to serve us. And the only time we see them, if they venture out to the markets or the restaurants, in their flashy vehicles with their big checks, uh, spending on things we can't afford. So again, um, in terms of. I would call it reform efforts in addition to the other reforms that the UN is currently engaged in. I think a lot more thought and concrete action needs to take place in how we can build bridges with the host nation in very tangible ways.
0: So that's really interesting. So so because of course this is one of the things we look at in this podcast is Interventions to build common ground, interventions to build peace, and UNMISS is, of course, a huge right. case in point. Um, and um, and I, I'm two questions. The first is is I, my understanding is that it was is the largest peacekeeping mission of the UN. Is that true? Think, it's one of yeah, them. I think it's anyway.
2: second to uh, DRC. Okay, to the Congo,
0: um, and. Uh, and probably
2: huge amounts of dollars going into yeah, about it. About a billion dollars a year.
0: And and where's the money coming from for
2: that? Um, peacekeeping missions are funded by UN member states through a special assessment where every member state is assessed to pay a certain amount based on the gross national product of that country with uh, UN Security Council members having to pay an additional Amount to the peacekeeping operations.
0: So, who was the biggest funder to South Sudan to UNMISS?
2: Well, the biggest funder for peacekeeping is the U.S. So, I suppose it's could be said it's the biggest funder to to um,
0: any of the missions.
2: Right. But again, it's okay. it's it's going to a pot, so it's not necessarily going to. A mission hmm. Security Council and the General Assembly votes on the budget for the mission. Uh, but the mission is not, um, yeah, it's not divvied up well, or US. How much do you want to pay for on this or right. hate? It. Right. It's paying to the pot. Right.
0: So, uh, you know, this is a big question I'm going to ask you, but of course, one of the, I mean, I, uh, one of the benefits of being able to be, do this podcast and be able to, to speak with, you know, some perspective. Um, and uh, for those of us who really hope to create a more peaceful world in our lifetimes and believe that that's possible, um, what, do you, what are your thoughts about the opportunity cost of Unmiss? Uh, the billion dollars, uh, you know, what's good about that? What it doesn't work about that? What are the alternatives that you saw? You know, what's what are you, what's you thinking about that? Um, with and now you're not working with now you're not working with UNUS anymore. So you've you're back, You're on your. You're able to look back and look at the whole thing with some reflection. I'm assuming.
2: Um, Ban Ki Moon came to Juba, I think, at least three occasions, and one of those occasions was um, after the big conflict. Uh, erupted in, in uh, Juba, and one of his comments was that UNMISS could have prevented a genocide in South Sudan by our presence, particularly the military. And I felt that was a very strong statement, and I think many felt it could have been true, that the situation could have gotten out of hand without present.
0: When you say strong statement, did you personally think it it could have been true?
2: Yeah, it could have been. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, So then the question becomes, do you need, so for the people who were saved, then it was money well spent, without a doubt. Mm. The question then becomes, But do you need a billion dollars to do that? Does that suggest that you don't need the civilian component, you just need the military? Because one of the recommendations that, again, the um, UN headquarters came up with one of these blue ribbon committees said is, for peacekeeping missions should only be deployed if there's a peace to keep. So, if there's not a peace to keep, then what do you do? Do
0: yeah? How do you de- how do you determine that though? That's yeah.
2: sometimes it's clear all the times, it's clear. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. but again, so if there's no peace to keep, then do you just send in the military and maybe call it something else, peace enforcement, or some other title? Mm-hmm. And once the situation is stable, then the civilian component. Others would say, no, they have to be deployed simultaneously because the civilian component is essential for building peace. You know, the civil affairs, the human rights, the disarmament, DDR component are all essential. So it has to be a holistic, integrated approach. So again, what does that holistic, integrated approach cost and whether or not that money can be used more effectively because a lot of the budget goes to reimbursing uh, the military for paying the troops for renting the equipment and things of that sort. So that drives up the budget tremendously. So unfortunately, there's no easy answers, um, but it requires certainly more of a holistic approach Building on this notion of the U.N. working as one, which is essential if and when it works. Well,
0: what was your observations of, play, you know, there are other, other actors, of course, uh, I don't know, the Business, Peace Direct, Nonviolent Peace Force. I don't know if you're aware of yeah. them, uh, organizations like that, um, Uh, you know, their impact versus the impact of Unmiss, you know, the differentiated
2: roles? Yeah, again, um, my view is everyone has a role to play and everyone can make a difference and everyone at minimum should be aware of what the other is doing, even if we're not sitting down working together. Mm -hmm. Um, Humanitarians historically have always said we do not want to be involved with the military component of missions because our humanitarian mandate is to be neutral. And if we're seen with the mission, then that is could be perceived as taking sides. So they've always had that notion. Um, the same is for um, NGOs and other civilian actors, uh, but there are mechanisms in place on the ground, where at a minimum, the different actors sit together and talk and share information. Uh, So in the mission, civil affairs and human rights are the two sections within a mission that often played a leadership role in meeting the civil sector actors and the other actors from outside of the country to work together to exchange information and come up with plans to move forward where... Or together where appropriate.
0: So, Joe, if you you know, have uh, um, um, limited limited time always with these podcasts, and but if you could hear the the whispers of the future, <laughs> or or from where you sit, or, or, or say you were a god, which of course you are, <laughs> but but. Uh, you you know, and and we want to get really serious about this business of like creating a more peaceful world. Um, what's your perspective now, having had this amazing experience on the ground in South Sudan? Uh, do you have thoughts about that, like what you think? I, I think. What that, you think this will take?
2: I think um, again. Uh, I, I love the Michael Jackson song "Man in the Mirror." where it should be man or woman in the mirror. And basically, um, it's talking about being what, you know, technically in the literature we call a reflective practitioner. And I think that's something we don't do enough of. And uh, I had an experience, a very useful experience this past year to reflect on an incident that I had whereby I wanted to seize the opportunity after being put in a new position in charge of my team where I said, okay, I want everyone to come up with a new ideal uh, because we're going to start a new initiative that called Training That Makes a Difference because there's lots of training that we're mandated to do from New York or the mission, but what is it that we think personally will really make a difference in terms of empowering people, motivating people? And one of the colleagues responded, uh, why was I asking him to think? (laughs) I was just like flabbergasted. Um, And as you can imagine, the conversation didn't go well. <laughs> but I had a chance. How did you? <laughs> I had a chance to reflect on it later and thought about the context in which um, he had been operating uh, in terms of low expectations, in terms of um, having different um, bosses over us who had changing mandates in terms of what they felt our unit should be doing, um, a feeling of n- not being respected as a national staff, and a sense of, you know, I'm a big international. I'm being paid so much more. I should do the thinking. Don't ask him to think. You know, all of these possible answers. And so once I had the opportunity to reflect on it, um, I was clear that I should have approached the situation entirely differently, um, one on one, and to hear what was his fears and concerns and how we could work on them together. So, again, I think each of us individually have to commit to what is it I can do? I'm tired of hearing myself complain about what somebody else is or is not doing, what is it I can do, and then do it.
0: Yeah, what is uh Brene Brown? Who is you know? I don't know if you've yeah, heard her yeah. name, but uh, but the, but she she talks about blame being the process of externalizing pain uh, pain and discomfort. I think is how she describes it, you know. And I I always like that. It's like putting it out on somebody else. And of course, of course, sometimes it's understandable, but it doesn't. you basically say it doesn't get us yeah. very far.
2: I, I since I left you the UN, I've had an opportunity to work with a group called Global Vision International. And mm-hmm. it started as what they call a um, therapy group idealist. idealists. <laughs> and the notion was at the founding that there were staff people who were disenchanted to the degree to which the UN wasn't living up to its core values. And so there was a sense of what can we do to reinforce those values in ourselves to see how our values are in line with the UN values. And so by re-engaging in those values, I'm more motivated and I would do a better job in helping the UN fulfill its values. Because if you work for the UN, it's like, who is the UN? What well, the UN is the International Civil Servants who work there. And so it's been a very important new chapter in terms of so values, training, and awareness we're embarking on. And I think that's key to motivating people to succeed.
0: And, and what do you, when you say core values, what are you talking about? The core values that are going missing, what are you talking about?
2: Um, just a notion of peace, diversity, tolerance, accountability, transparency, being that presence
0: yes. in in the world wherever wherever you are as an organization right. or as a group of yeah. people, yeah. yeah, yeah. So okay, so well, we have to we have to wind up. This time goes so quickly, mm-hmm. and I just wanted to ask you if there's anything you haven't said that you'd like to say, um, you know, and uh, and I also wanted to hear from you. You know, if you had to say what your greatest learning has been from your time at UNMIS, uh, on whatever level, professional, personal, uh, curious about what you would say that was.
2: I would not say there was necessarily a greatest learning, but it was wonderful to have some ideals confirmed. In terms of the importance of listening, um, you know, I love the, the, the saying attributed to Native Americans, the creator gave us two ears and one mouth so we can listen twice as much as we speak. And the, the tremendous
0: that's interesting that that is Native American. Of course, I always heard it as Thomas Jefferson, uh, but you know, uh, go uh, figure that he would get credit uh, for that. it was really right,
2: Native American. That's right. <laughs> um, and so, just just the wonderful gift when people from different cultures and backgrounds want to share their story with you, and how important it is to basically stop talking and listening. And the notion of there's so many people out there who want to make a difference, want to make a change, and it's just a matter of being open, and you will find them, and together you will find a way to continue to move forward. It may be slow, you know, as we always heard in cartoons, Shreya, 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 Shreya. What does that mean? Slowly, slowly. Slowly, slowly. <laughs> but it, it happens. Um, again, the camp in Juba in 2006, the conditions were not very pleasant. Um, in, in 2017, um, personnel had their own evolutions. They were, those who were still in containers, basically had doubled the size of the containers and many of them had bathrooms attached. Other staff had basically houses um, within the UN compound and the new headquarters. So things change. Um, the more important question is how much closer have we come to peace in South Sudan? And that's the frustrating part for me personally. Um, but those who continue to work on it, um, but say, yeah, peace processes is shway, shwaya uh, You just have to be patient and committed and never give up hope. And so,
0: yeah, perhaps it's just the power of intention. I i am always, you know, marvel at that, that when you set a very clear intention and purpose, uh, and focus, um, regardless of the bureaucracy that might be going on around you or whatever the challenge is, uh, you actually might be able to manifest something positive uh, in the direction that you're headed. Um, so so on that note, Joe, thank you so much for your time. And uh, it's really been a pleasure. It's always a pleasure to see you. I, I know the listeners can't see this <laughs> but you just have one of the most radiant smiles, you know, and uh, it's hard not, it's hard not to just smile along with you. Thank you. <laughs> However, <laughs> the, whatever the situation might be. <laughs> so, um, so anyway, I really thank you for your time and uh, yeah. And look forward to the next time that we see you. All right, Susan. All the best. Beautiful. Okay. <laughs> thank you so uh, so uh, how did that go okay yeah, for you? it was fun it was fun. Um, anything that you didn't say that you wanted to say or
2: um, no I you were right the time went really fast
0: <laughs> I know it feels like it went really fast I mean it's 10 o'clock and I think we started pretty much on time but it's like geez how, I'm not sure it really did feel particularly fast and I maybe it was because there was a lot of different stories that could have been mm-hmm. told um and it, it's a, it's a bit of a, yeah, it's a bit of a frustration to me, or I don't know, like some podcasters, they just let it go and they do, they, and and we could have done that. And I don't know. I, it's a, it's a question mark for me. I don't know. I, I mostly think I have to keep it to sort of an hour, but, but, um, yeah, cause we could have gotten into a, yeah. you know, some real colorful <laughs> stories and, uh. Um, listen to what, yeah, listen
2: and I, to I see if you like it, if you want to redo it, whatever, just let me know.
0: Well, what, what would we have said if we had gotten into more colorful stories? Uh, what would I mean? I guess it would have been uh, just the re, some real realities of camp life. Yeah,
2: and I, I, I would um, have said more in terms of c- concretely this. The need to overcome, well, no, to concretely live this notion of UN working as one, which is one of these great things. you know, all the UN should work together instead of, you know, UNICEF over there and UNHCR over here, peacekeeping. that we're all one UN. Um, but that's not the reality, but as a principle, it's very important. So the same way. As I mentioned about, you know, there's headquarters versus there's New York headquarters versus the field. There's the field versus other actors within the mission. I think we talked about this when you came to Juba at some point. There's a substantive staff versus the mission support division staff. There's the international civilian staff versus the national staff. So there's all of these divisions that we create um that we have to overcome to try to do our work. Yeah. Um so it's yeah, it's
0: yeah, talking about building common <laughs> ground is how the heck do you build common ground within the system that's trying to build common <laughs> <Exactly>. ground? <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so that just would have been yeah. one point, but um yeah, I, I think we we I touched on it briefly and so and I think people who know the system will know that that's a real challenge how to overcome.
0: The other thing that's kind of interesting to bring out, and this is more just the reality of living there, is 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 the type of person, like I remember a woman that I, when I was in Torret, uh, I think it was, no, no, it was at your house, actually. We went, I think we went over to your house yeah. for dinner. And she was there and she had been living in Torit or she'd been living in one of the other uh, remote parts of South Sudan.
2: And um,
0: which I can't remember the the names of the other places. What are the other ones? There's Torit. Oh, yeah.
2: Um, Where else did you go? Wow.
0: Wow. I never went to Wow. But but anyway, she she had been in one of the places where.
2: Yambio, I think.
0: Yambio, maybe Um, where there had been like constant fighting. And, uh, you know, and so she'd be in her container. And I, I think my memory is, you know, just constant, constant bullets going by and this and that. And there's a certain kind of person who, I mean, it was almost like, uh, it sounded hard, but it also sounded like there was a lot of adrenaline and she uh, enjoyed the experience. She And she was very grateful for her Kindle because she was able to because <laughs> it kept its batteries and she was able to read a lot uh when she couldn't go out and I, those are some of my memories about some of what she said does that
2: sound Yeah um, when we were um, evacuated the last time in in 2016 I was in Netebi and came across an old friend we had worked together in Khartoum. he's now with the mission in Somalia and he said uh, when he's back in Somalia because they have containers too he said he sleeps in his clothes every night because you never know if their compound yeah. is going to be attacked, and that's like normal. Yeah. It's like how how can you be healthy if this is kind of an environment you're living in? R- right. right,
0: you're always living under siege. It's really difficult right. to make some kind of proactive. So, difference. our, um,
2: you remember Nash, staff counselor?
0: Mm, that's
2: a person, yeah. Nash.
0: Yeah. Nah. no, I, yeah. I actually don't. I don't uh, know.
2: Maybe. But again, it's one of these things, you know, that he and others talked about, but, you know, it's always voluntary. He you know, would say, mm-hmm. if you want to come talk to me, you know, I'm here. You know, he had little couches in his office with coffee and sweets, but I think that's something the system doesn't take serious enough in terms of. It
0: is a level of trauma that staff people are going through just by living there and trying to do that yeah. kind of work. Yeah. They're trying to deal with a traumatized population, but they are a traumatized population themselves.
2: And uh, Another point I was going to mention was this notion of um, we always talked about when are you going home? Oh, I'm going home. You look at a calendar, you count the number of days you're in the mission versus the number of days you're at this other place you call home and where's your home? You know, yeah. for US tax purposes my home was always South Sudan.
0: <laughs> yeah, 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 right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But a lot of people not don't have a real sense of where that home base right. is and they're kind of wanting to get out of there but I know they can't get a lot of people felt angry with the two UNs, the the UN that allows mobility and the UN that, you know, people feeling stuck right. in peacekeeping and can't right. move. Um
2: somebody and yeah. then Sorry. yeah. Someone was just telling me last week that um, they've canceled the mobility because it was a mess, the program.
0: (laughs) Oh, is that right? Oh, that's interesting. Uh Uh-huh. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, and then the, the, um, I don't know what to say about this, but as a gestalt person, I'm always interested in these parallel processes between, you know, what's happening with the intervener and what's happening with the outside system. And um I mean there was there was a, a lot of ways that Unmis couldn't get its well like what you're saying, it couldn't get its cooperative value it couldn't really come together from the top down to the bottom. And some of that was the senior leadership. Yeah. Uh but which which yeah.
2: yeah. I, I yeah. On this point. Communication. So my yeah, in many ways, a fond memory is in twenty two thousand and seven, the mission in Juba, the headquarters, which we were relatively small, and every morning, we would every Monday morning we would start nine o'clock. We would all meet at the Tukul,
0: which is the cafeteria. But
2: Mm-hmm. And but this is flexible when we were out by the airport, not long before.
0: Which, by the way, I remember was always playing U.S. country Western <laughs> music, which struck me as like, what's wrong with this picture? I don't know. Yeah.
2: <laughs> so we would meet nine o'clock on Monday and the head of the office would do an update on on. So give an update on what's going on in the life of the mission. what's been going on the previous week. We had the political affairs officer would give a political brief in terms of what's happening between the parties. Um, The top security officer would talk about any incidents of criminality or fighting. Uh, Then there was announcements, new people coming, hey, welcome, people leaving, we're going to miss you and any other announcements. So it had more of a family atmosphere, and no matter who you were, you felt a part of the mission. Mm. Now, I understand...
0: Fun, right? That must have felt fun. I
2: understand how, as the mission grows, it's more difficult to do that, but I think somehow efforts need to be made to do it to the extent possible. Um, The different SRSGs would come in and they would...
0: Which which are the heads, they're basically the... They are the executive directors, They whatever you call it. They're the top of the system, SRSG.
2: So the various SRSGs would come in and say, yes, you know, we're going to have town hall meetings every two, three months. They may do it once and then, because they're too busy saving the world. And so, of course, staff are going around feeling disenchanted, not part of the mission, not knowing what's going on. So it becomes more the select few Section heads have all the information, and the notion that it's their obligation to trickle it down to their staff. But if they're busy too saving the world, then yeah, people just walk around like, "Why am I here? What's going on?"
0: Yeah, I've seen that problem so many times where the focus is is outside of leadership is outside rather than really taking taking on the job of being the conductor of the orchestra. You know. Like really taking their people and saying okay let's really let's really play this right. concerto, even if we're in the middle of a of a war zone let's let's really come together as a family, really really have each other's backs let's really work you know let's let's really hum together and yeah. um,
2: it yeah. would be interesting if somebody's doing a management study on communication within organizations mm-hmm. um, in the electronic age. And and look at peacekeeping missions uh, in terms of how to make people feel more engaged, because, you know, Mm -hmm. the mission would say, oh, we do broadcasts every day. Well, again, that's not the information people need. You know, one, people don't like to read. So the mission would say, well, you know, we give the information. It's not our fault if nobody wants to read it. But it's what kind of information are you given? Because most people I talked to by the end were saying, I don't bother reading the broadcast anymore, because there's so much crap Mm -hmm. that you're not interested in, you miss the one piece of news that might have been relevant to you.
0: Yeah, you know, what you're saying is kind of like also my gestalt train, so it's like, what's the the presence that you need to bring to the system? Mm And kind of what you're saying is that peacekeeping mission could have done better. Really, it did at some points, but it, but as it grew, it needed to do better, bringing this presence of a unified, uh, of a of a of a collaborative force, right. so that then it could it could really model that to the to the to the world around it, which was of course in, in total chaos and conflict. Right. Um, but instead. The system, the the internal system was kind of in its own chaos and conflict. Um, So it really wasn't then bringing bringing the presence that was needed.
2: One little thing we did when we switched from the old mission to the new mission, because I was based in WoW then. uh, So I had my own little world. So the induction. We all do. So My (laughs) induction started with having people read the mandate of the new mission break them in groups, say, okay, you three read the first two pages, you four read the next, and then have to give a presentation uh, saying what was in the pages you read and what was your role? Because, you know, in the groups was military, police, civilians, national, international. And again, something I learned from working in the mayor's office, working for foundations, it's nothing more valuable than bringing people together to find their own way. Like, and to buy
0: into the to the mandate or the purpose to get really clear about what the team purpose is, if you will, right. and then understand their particular part of that.
2: Right. Yes, it
0: so fundamental, so completely fundamental.
2: Because the big issue was, okay, if you work for human rights and the mandate says it's part of your mission, then you're clear what your role is. But if you're a mechanic, you're sitting there going uh, – you know, And others are going, yeah, you're just fixing cars. Well, no, if they don't fix the car, you're not going out to investigate those alleged atrocities and all this kind of stuff. Or, oh, the military are people, too. And the military are going, oh, you civilians are useful, too.
0: Yeah, so but, again, it's, it really comes back to being the conductor of the orchestra, you know, having a really great conductor of the orchestra. Uh, what I like to call it, you know, so that so that everybody really understands the part that their instrument is playing and why it's why it's key to the whole symphony. If you could call a peacekeeping mission in South Sudan a symphony, but you know,
2: boy, you're being kind and generous. Yeah,
0: yeah, well, you know, but really, I mean, ideally, ideally it is, you know, ideally it is. It's it's it comes in, you know, with a huge amount of resources and it creates a really amazing sense of of, um, you know, har- harmony together so that it is that kind of presence in the whole system, the country of South Sudan, where people are hurting so badly and there's so much conflict going on. Um, but, uh, but yeah, but then there's this presence. Um, so uh, anyway, that's, it's a cool, it's a cool vision and, uh, and one that, you know, perhaps
2: can be realized when people... Get yeah. Get clear about the importance of it. We hope. One of the other points I had wanted to mention also, which I didn't think about when you asked me at the end, was I wanted to mention about the uh, the conflict competency training. Yeah. Which is again, is one of those important tools to move things forward. Um, which.
0: Yeah, say a little bit about what it what it is. I mean, obviously, I was involved in it, but but yeah, just so people understand what it is or what would, yeah. what you're talking about.
2: The notion of the UN is mandating very specific kind of training for personnel on ethics and and other types of competencies, but there's nothing related to helping staff uh, deal with conflicts which may arise in the course of their day-to-day work with colleagues, um, which is something the UNBUDS office um, calls conflict competencies. And I think as part of the UN core competencies of communication skills, respect for diversity and others, there should, in fact, be a competency on Conflict resolution skills and abilities. And so the notion of deliberately training staff in those areas of conflict competencies as a first step so that they can use in their day to day work environment, but also then identifying those with a particular skill set and interest where they become many mediators that can be dispatched uh, within their sections to other sections or to other field locations to help personnel deal with those conflict situations.
0: Yeah, that was our our dream, right? We were trying to
2: make that happen, and then... I came across several individuals who went through the training and said, Joe, that training was so important, and I was able to use it in X, Y, and Z or they came back and said the training was important. Is there someone that can help because there's a conflict going on between two individuals in this particular section? Is there someone who can come help mediate that? I'm so glad
0: to hear that. So it actually was having an impact. Uh,
2: I think the ideal is still extremely valuable. And I hope um, certainly New York, the Enbridge Office in New York, um, takes up the concept and um, and discuss it with other missions who might be ready and willing to move it forward.
0: Yeah, because some of those conflicts, they might be internal to the mission, but they often paralleled exactly what was going on in the outside world. So they were, <laughs> you know, it's, it's layer upon, it's a system. If you take a systems lens, it's layer upon layer upon layer. And if you get, again, you get your internal act together not to be critical, but you really, you become highly skilled in walking your talk, resolving conflict, well, you're going to be way more impactful um, in the world around you. Right. So
2: thank you again for the role you played in that training. Yeah. Well, it was a pleasure. Um,
0: So anything else that you haven't said that you...
2: I'm good. All right. Always a pleasure, Susan. Susan. See you later. Bye. Bye. Be in touch, okay. Bye.
1: So, thank you, podcast listeners, for tuning in again to hear Joe Washington. If you're interested to read more, know more, or contact Joe Washington, you can find his bio and details on the website. Next, interview, I think you'll be very interested in, we will be talking to Dr. Scylla Alworthy, who is a three times Nobel Peace Prize nominee, founder of Peace Direct, among many other achievements and accolades. She'll be talking about her new book, A Business Plan for Peace. Now, this book is fascinating, and Scylla Alworthy is fascinating, because she talks about war and how it makes a few people exceedingly rich and the incentives that drive war and keep many other millions of people very poor it's a fascinating topic and we certainly hope you can tune in if you'd like to learn more about Silla prior to the episode you can read up on her website at sillaalworthy.com that's s-c-i-l-l-a-e-l worthy.com bye for now